Welcome to Early Homecoming, a podcast for missionaries who have returned home early and for those who care about them. My name is Kristen Reber, and I am the author of Early Homecoming, a resource for early returned missionaries, their church leaders, and family. On this podcast, you will hear stories and gain insights from myself and other missionaries who returned home early, as well as experts, parents, and church leaders. Join us on the path of understanding and healing as we share our stories and insights about the phenomena of returning home early from a mission. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Early Homecoming. I have a special guest with me today, and before I introduce him, I just want to give a heads up to the listeners that we will be talking about heavy topics, including abuse and trauma. If you are experiencing it and not quite ready to hear about it, I just want to give a a slight trigger warning, although I think that it will be talked about in a way that will help you and be very uplifting, and be a source of goodness in your life. But I wanted to state that up front, um, that this is what this episode is going to revolve around. So with that, I'm going to now introduce us to Cody, uh, who is here to tell us his story. So Cody is from a small town in Washington State. He prepared daily to go on a mission from a young age, and despite traumatic experiences at church, He persisted in preparing for a mission due to his love for the gospel. He was sent to a difficult mission in the South, where he was unfortunately abused by leaders. He was sent home, endured bullying, and went through more trauma and stress. He hopes that sharing his story will help make it so others don't have to go through what he did and offer solutions for the future. So, Cody, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am anxious to talk to you and hear more about your experience. So to start off, I would like to ask, how did you prepare before your mission? You had this love for the gospel, but it sounds like you didn't have a whole lot of love from your ward members. (laughs) Yes, is that uh, at a very young age, I mean, I never really questioned uh, going on a mission, I just instinctively always wanted to. Every dollar I ever made, every choice, even the small ones, (laughs) homework assignments that I have throughout school was all about, like, I'm just thinking, how is this going to prepare for my future and all that uh, pretty meticulously. All the money that I made, like even selling some of my hobbies to, uh, you know, all that money went to my mission and I could never imagine that. my life without serving a mission and my wildest dreams. And spiritually, I tried to prepare every day in my character and, and my routine and and so on. I'm curious in your application, you did talk about receiving just some bullying from ward members. Why Mm -hmm. did you want to encourage people to come to this church or invite them to come unto Christ through this church when I can't imagine you experienced a whole lot of Christ, or at least not Christ-like behavior at church? Well, at the time, I didn't really know. I wasn't really uh, confessing to myself. I was kind of in, I was still in a state of denial as far as the abuse comes. But as far as bringing my friends to the church and, and all that is, is that the, the gospel always made sense to me. The the plan of salvation, the happiness. And there were times, especially in middle school, when I was able to switch out of schools because of the bullying that was going on there, that I had felt a bit of a peace in my heart. And I could see a lot of people that had been lost and and I really wanted to help them in any way that I could and just to feel a sort of peace that that I had been longing to for myself as well. So your relationship with God and Jesus Christ goes very deep, it sounds like. 
Yeah, at a very, uh, very young age, I I do remember pondering a lot of gospel topics at a very, at a very young age. But uh, the catalyst, the main catalyst that kind of brings my memory back to it was when I was uh, pretty much sitting on the stage of my school auditorium and I wouldn't eat, wouldn't go out to recess and, and all that. And I just pondered life and pondered the gospel. And, and uh, that was basically the uh, foundation of where I'd kind of built all my, I guess, uh, <laughs> train of thought, my character, and also my testimony as well. That's great. So you were able to indeed serve a mission. What was your mission in the South like? Well, people call where I went to kind of the the belt buckle of of it all. But uh, when I was down there, I it uh, it was it was a pretty difficult place to be as far as uh, just just uh, the way people live their lifestyles in general and. But as far as um, as far as everything is concerned, opening my mouth to a lot of uh, religious people who are steadfast and you know maybe even look at uh, the church as a um, in their minds would be kind of considered a cult and all that. That, uh, but I I did honestly I I didn't think of it at the time, but I always was looking for one little thing to love about my mission. And uh, the only thing that I could think of that uh, came to mind when I, that wasn't anywhere that I'd ever been to was the red cardinal bird, <laughs> which shows you how hard I was looking. <laughs> you know? Is that uh, a real bird in the South? The red, the red cardinal? Yep. Okay. Yep. Just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Okay, so it was a difficult mission, and I can only imagine that, yeah, southern United States would be a difficult place. Um, They have a very strong culture down there. From what I've heard, haven't personally experienced it, and um, they are quite religious, I believe, as well down there already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it? it, uh, I remember being very shocked the first few days of of people saying – we all believe in Jesus. We all believe that we are going to be saved, but you know, like nobody was smiling. Everybody just looked really miserable down there. But you know, I was able to uh, open my mouth. Uh, you know, especially after my first transfer, my my uh, second companion was was like, if I hadn't have been told that you were <laughs> you how long you'd been out, I would have assumed that you would have been out at least a year, <laughs> and all. So. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I, I was able to get over a lot of the um, cultural shock as it, as it were. (laughs) Well, that's good. And you were ready. It sounds like too, for it. Uh, How long did you serve for? Under six months. Under six months. Okay. So what derailed your mission? What caused it? So you came home? Well, there was a lot of things. It was uh, what uh, some people would have told me you know, which is the wrong way of, of saying it, which is, uh, you know, the cliche, bad trainer, bad companions, <laughs> bad mission president and, and all. But what uh, derailed the, the whole thing was basically what narcissistic abuse, which I had no idea what that was at the time and, or that I had experienced it in other places, but there was a tremendous amounts of what was called gaslighting and, because of my loyalty to the church and all that, uh, there was there'd be people that spun doctrine to kind of more or less fit the uh, I wouldn't say narrative, but it would fit the goal of just trying to provide numbers for Salt Lake, which was a little bit of a shock for me. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to eat with members. We weren't allowed to. Uh, there wasn't any sanctuary, you know, rules were just so strict that, I mean, one had to worry about accidentally breaking them. And if you did, it was like your salvation's on the line. And it was always just this really uptight overbearance type of thing in, in practically all things to where I'd never heard of a mission really that 
overbearing i've heard of in different parts but like all around that was that was pretty pretty bad but uh but what what happened a lot with uh i was i was just basically dealing with a lot of pain from the narcissistic abuse and uh here the stress basically was weakening my immune system and i didn't know it at the time and a lot of people were kind of pushing the spiritual taboo of uh maybe it's your your lack of faith maybe it's your maybe it's the lord the you know the refiner's fire the devil trying to test you and in various ways and uh and that just made the problem even worse because uh at that time when you're going through narcissistic abuse the worst thing you can you know tell somebody to do when they're going through that is to take advice because you're asking an overheated computer to download more <laughs> and especially when you're talking about spiritual matters i mean spiritual matters things that we have only influence but not i would say probably direct control over in some cases it can be absolutely devastating especially if most of the motivation is by fear because there was a lot of doctrine spun around but one of my companions when i was in a trio was saying after you know basically capturing the, the spirit of the mission and he was being very serious with this about being perfectly obedient and he said i've been thinking a lot about perfectly obedient if we're out the door at 1001 and not literally not 10 o'clock then we miss somebody and if we, if we're not we're not being perfectly obedient missionaries and when we're not being perfectly obedient missionaries the lord is not going to put people that he is prepared to be baptized in the path of unworthy missionaries and you know going based off of what irene said if there's only people out there that only you can touch or either you can save i can't remember exactly how he put it but it was like then we basically miss somebody and what are we going to do in the next life you know when these when these people come up and say why didn't you give me the gospel why didn't you like what and what are we going to say like i'm sorry just being perfectly obedient was just too hard <laughs> so it uh it was very much the letter of the law uh in everything and down to the minute to where we something as simple as like emailing us we couldn't go a minute under a minute over you know just being perfectly obedient if anything was going wrong we just kind of dug into ourselves and and i wasn't the only one i mean there were just people just bashing on over i mean a lot of people were pretty scared in mm -hmm. in this case. Wow, yeah, it sounds like you experienced the absolute worst of culture in the church, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. But also, yes, narcissistic abuse. I'm not a therapist, however, you know, I have studied some psychology, but I'm I'm going off of Google here real quick because it's it's easy. But there are a lot of signs of narcissistic abuse. Basically, to define it, I mean it's abuse, specifically emotional abuse that comes from a person with narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, narcissism, I believe, is on a spectrum. So whether or not it you is. were uh, experiencing full-blown narcissists or just people who were kind of acclimating and getting sucked in, if you will, to a narcissistic culture, I think the point still stands that abuse stemmed from that. And gaslighting is a sign, uh, being gaslighted rather, is a sign of narcissistic abuse. And to define that, gaslighting is very dangerous. It's the intentional act of making you distrust your views of reality or believing that you are mentally unstable, using specific targeted phrases to make you feel this way, such as perfectly obedient. Emotionally. It's scary how it's, effective that is. It's so effective and it's so quick and it plays into your desires to be a good missionary and the fear that you won't be. I mean, they're really good. Narcissists are really good at taking what you fear and using your weaknesses against you, which we all have, 
But instead of being like a, a good leader that helps you overcome weaknesses or helps you accept your weaknesses, but then work on your strengths, narcissists will just bully you and make you feel so, so less than, um, less than a person. And what comes from that kind of abuse, and there's more, but if you guys want to look up narcissistic abuse, please just Google it. But what does narcissistic abuse do to a person? It gives you a pervasive sense of shame, overwhelming feelings of helplessness, and emotional flashbacks. In other words, a whole lot of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And then here's kind of the symptoms that that's what you're going through. You apologize often, even when it's not your fault. You blame yourself for every setback. I think that's kind of because you've become conditioned to do that. Yes. You have a loss of confidence. You have feelings of isolation from your friends and family or on a mission, your companion. Difficulty with decision making because you just have, I mean, you've lost confidence in yourself. Mm -hmm. And lastly, feeling like you have lost a sense of self. So it's extremely serious. And the fact that it happens on a mission and you're not the first I've heard this from is very, very serious. Yeah. And I mean, every, every abuse is serious, but I, from all the abuse that I've, uh, that I've known, even from people that have suffered different types of trauma, they say that this one is the worst kind because it's not a specific point in time where something traumatic happened to you. It's a thing that's dropped that's spread out through a certain amount of time and it slowly infects you to where I could tell somebody that, Hey, I've been either molested or something. And I don't have to go into detail about it. The church, like just even the culture of, of everything is that people just know they have that. There's that shock value and rightfully so. It's just the, the problem is, is that when it comes to narcissistic abuse, there is no shock value, you know, cause there's a lot of people that were like, Oh, well, that's, that's nothing to be concerned about. It's, it's kind of equivalent to the Chinese water torture method where it's just one drop of water at a time while you're strapped down. And, you know, people are like, Oh, it's just a drop of water. And they're, finding out that it actually, some people that have gone through it that have actually tested it out have been, uh, you know, really shocked by how it affects them in ways that they didn't even, that they didn't even ever consider that that was there. And so, I mean, you actually are prevented from getting the help that you need. And mostly because of that, because there aren't really alarm bells going off in, in most cases or a lot of cases that I've heard. No, abuse, you can never blame the victim. Abuse is such that it is designed to strip you of your sense of self and your self-worth and your ability to see what's even happening to you. It's mm -hmm. persistent. Like you're saying, the Chinese water torture starts with a drop, but it just keeps going until you don't even... I, well, Chinese water torture, I think they do realize they're being tortured. So maybe mm. <laughs> the boiling the frog metaphor is probably a better one. It's hard to find it, an analogy that really fits yeah. all of this. And that's, and that's what makes it difficult is that you, you're just trying to figure out what it is. It's just, it's okay. a very difficult thing to do. And it's, it can be very uh, <laughs> soul shattering just to experience that because you start self-doubting anything, you know, and when you are still in a bad relationship with a person, I've never gotten into a, a relationship with a girlfriend or anything like that. But just being in that relationship, you're constantly self doubting, you're always looking for that external validation. And unfortunately, most narcissistic cystic people, they will actually try to sever those connections. So you can't get a point of reference <laughs> to it. It's uh, kind of like the Shakespeare play Othello, where the bad guy Iago is doing all these things. And it's a perfect example, if you ever see that play, that of just how easy this would be if one character, just one character would turn around and just talk to the other person <laughs> to get a point of reference. But with narcissists, they want to stop that dead in their tracks. So you don't really have that outside source or they'll start talking to any of your friends and they'll like start playing like the victim or the plane, like, Oh, I just want to help and all that. So, but yes, 
Yes. No, you nailed it. Was the narcissism mainly coming from your mission president? It was uh, mostly coming from my trainer because um, my trainer had total control over everything. He had control over what we ate, you know, what uh, our whole schedule. And, you know, he did a lot of a lot of underhanded things and he admitted to me several times that what he was doing was wrong but he never apologized for it and it was just and you know he'd be like oh you you can make the plans today and then i'd say oh, i i feel like we probably should go this go here and he's like why would we go there you know and uh so it was kind of like this i'm going to give you a little bit of bit of freedom or I'm going to, I'm going to be nice to you. And then all of a sudden, no. And yeah, he'd uh, treat me like dirt and he'd keep on <laughs> before we'd go to bed. He'd just keep on saying, I love the elder. I love the elder. And just would keep on saying that until I said it back and all, but That's so uh, weird. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And like, even he looked for like any little digs, you know, to, to get after me. I, as far as ever, I've been bullied out of schools. I've been antagonized, you know, in, in you know various ways throughout my life. But I'd have to say that hands down, I've never met anybody who, so audaciously evil as he was, because <laughs> we'd be up at uh, just knocking up at doors and and all that, and he'd be he'd knock on the door, and then he'd look over at me and just scan scan down looking for thing something he didn't like and he'd just be like fix that tie and and i couldn't even respond to that because somebody would typically open the door <laughs> and all mm. yeah and you were a new missionary i mean you were six months in the field you wanted to be good you had an overbearing trainer or even abusive trainer and you just are trying to figure it out it's a whole new lifestyle this mission and yeah, I can I can just imagine the confusion happening for you, like knowing that you're not being treated well, but at the same time, maybe you are, and this is just how missions are, and he's using phrases that are very cultural in the church, such as perfectly obedient or lacking in faith, and mm -hmm. you you that self-doubt really starts to creep in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did word ever get back to your mission president about this, either from you or from your companion or I'm assuming your trainer was your companion for the whole six months. Let me know if I'm wrong. No, he, I had, uh, from the MTC to when I came home, I had six. Oh my gosh. That's so and, many. um, yeah. And he was the one I was with the longest. Sorry. Remind me of your question again. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, we, I did two at you. I was wondering how this got back to your mission president. Oh, I see. Um, yes. Is that, I was tried to tell him from the get go when when I got off the plane we like my relationship with him like right off the bat like unfortunately didn't turn out so well cuz I'm just thinking that this guy's going to be you know the almost the father figure you know he's going to be the guy that I'm that's going to you know help me through this uh these spiritual moments and you know he's going to invite him to my future wedding and all that and I was one out of 14 missionaries when we got to the airport and I w was looking frantically around for him, you know, cause I just was like, I want to meet him so bad. And then I see him and he's very different from his, the picture that, uh, that we were sent, but you know, and he's this huge guy and I go walking up to him and he's kind of looking over the top of me and I stick my hand out and he doesn't even look at me. He just kind of sticks his hand out kind of unusually like with his palm down. And, and I didn't think much of it, but I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll like make the best of this. And, uh, and then once, you know, we shake hands, he, he looks down and he's like, no. And then grabs my hand more firmly like this elder first lesson and walks right by me <laughs> off to the, and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I failed, you know? <laughs> But uh, when I actually did reach out to him uh, later on, I couldn't even get a sentence out uh, before he just jumped right down my throat. And that happened every time that I spoke to him. What was he upset about? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, he, he does fit the na narcissistic you know, profile pretty, pretty well. I mean, he's 
looking good for for anybody that's going to enable his character just looking good for salt lake always about the numbers miles driven pass along cards book of mormons you know we i mean it was all about just the numbers of first time contacts and whenever he uh i spoke to him it was just kind of i couldn't really f- speak freely because my companion was just always over my shoulder and and I just was trying to let him know that that something's wrong and I'm like I but I'm still at this point kind of in a state of denial and kind of blaming myself a bit but and I simply could only say I see a weakness there that wasn't there before and and he's like well that's life elder and that's exactly <laughs> he you know just kind of would always respond with a harsh tone and it was kind of like you got to get with the program type of deal so wow all right i'm so sorry you had to go through that that is god that is that's the worst i also had a very difficult trainer i don't know if she was a narcissist or not it's been i honestly i've moved on but i can relate to the perfectly obedient and you are the one lacking in faith I think it was honestly just the culture of my mission whether that stemmed from my mission president or not I don't know. I've honestly not even wanted to really psychoanalyze that. And it would take me uh, talking to these people again to psychoanalyze it. Um, <laughs> however, I um, just want to let you that. know, I, I can relate. And I think you and I were on missions around the same time too, 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I know not all mission presidents. I want to just say to the listeners, not all, especially if you're tuning in for the first time, especially if you're a non-member, not all mission presidents or even missions are like this. Cody is definitely experiencing something that I would say is probably more uncommon than common with the exception that there are just certain things in our culture that we have a hard time letting go of. And where they come from is a different discussion, but I do think a lot of it stems from well-meaning things that leadership in the church has said to try to help motivate people as particularly missionaries to stay focused and stay on track and find the people who are ready to hear the gospel. But oftentimes they, all right, they become pharisaical certain people and they look beyond the mark and they just want the numbers. They want to look good. And this goes for missionaries too, not just mission presidents. They just want to hit these imaginary goals which seem more important to them than bringing others to Christ. And oftentimes they forget that sometimes the person who needs to be brought unto Christ and needs that grace is their companion, is themselves, are the people that they are closest to. And it's really unfortunate. And Cody here is the one who kind of became a victim to all of that. Cody, what was it like to be sent home? It was soul crushing. I mean, I, was in a state of this is all my fault you know really scared because the lord does not call us to fail who's ever going to believe me and you know there was nothing at home waiting for me and my family wasn't going to take this well uh, especially being uh, one out of five and me being the only one that that came home early and the type of sadness that came over me, I wouldn't say necessarily if that it was because of, you know, just the act of coming in self, but the problems that, that I was dealing with at the time of the results of n- narcissistic abuse and, and the fact that I had prepared my whole life and my mission was kind of more or less the biggest plan that I had, you know, for my life and have it come all undone spectacularly and all it uh it basically was what i would describe as kind of a sadness that would echo through the eternities you know it was just it was a really out of this world type of experience there and just to back it up a little before we started recording i'd asked cody what exactly was your reason for coming home why were you sent home usually it has to do with mental health physical health you know worthiness but cody go ahead and tell them what you told me why were you sent home what was the reason 
Well, I never made the choice to come home. I was more or less backed into a verbal corner throughout the days. I was losing energy and and most of that was because we weren't allowed to eat with members, so we didn't really get a home-cooked meal, and we were always out. We were a tracking mission, so we were always out and about, and uh, because the trainer was deciding everything that we ate, uh, he had us go living off of uh, granola, ramen, <laughs> you know, or stuff that we could have on the go, and I'm like, you know, before I liked white bread, but I can't have it consist- consistently as a base diet. But, but, and so that, that right there is, is that I wasn't getting the proper nutrition. And that started to show to where uh, exercising uh, became very, just made it, you know, even worse. But, but when it uh, came down to the mission president, he had, uh, he basically just was putting me into a verbal corner, kind of guilting me saying that I was holding up my, uh, he's like, is it fair to, for you to hold back your companion? Which I don't know if he, I don't know how he could have known that, you know, possibly my companion may have said something at the time. He didn't strike me as that type of person, but, but yeah, is that I pretty much was, guilted into it to where I, I just couldn't make the decision to come home because it was nothing less than a spiritual death sentence. And, but when that was there and I thought that I was holding up the work, I could only give my consent to, of what Salt Lake, you know, what their decision was. And I was never told directly that I was going home. It was kind of more or less <laughs> my companion. I, <laughs> my companion's like, you know, pack up. So that, that, uh, that whole ordeal was, yeah, it was, it was very inconclusive, which is a very traumatizing thing in itself is that you don't know why you don't know what's going on, you know, like who are the factors, you know, when you're dealing with grief or you're dealing with upset anger and all that, it's like, who did what, what's going on (laughs) and all like, could this have been avoided, you know, and, and all. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, too, when you came home, your family, were they also letter of the law people? I would say that in, in certain points, I think we all are like letter of the law in somewhere. But uh, but in that case, most of my family just was more or less quiet and and uh, weren't more or less interested in, in really what had happened. And, you know, some things were said, you know, people were just like, oh, he more or less came home, you know, he just, what if that was the refiner's fire? What, you know, and, and all and that, that was difficult to be one character and then come back with another, all the sacrifices that I had gone through in my youth. And, and for everybody, that person that I was before just was totally ignored all the sacrifices. And it's kind of just like, you got to get healthy, get right back out there. And, and all and but uh <laughs> there was just a lot of things said and a lot of things done and i was at my weakest what did you go through personally with yourself cuz it's it's one thing to have these outside sources telling you things about you whether it's be good or bad but now i want to know what have you gone through in the last 12 years well um hard to find a silver lining in there but i I'd say that I'm finding a few in the last couple of years. You know, I had nothing to go back to. I didn't get a girlfriend, you know, just because I, when I was going on my mission, everything was about preparing for my mission. And then after my mission, it all became about recovering from it is that all my coping mechanisms that I had before were, were of no help. And, uh, you know, family was either avoidant or toxic over the situation. The medical road was just one nightmare after another where they had almost killed me a few times. If uh, you've ever seen that movie, Miracles from Heaven, (laughs) the whole trip that they take with the the doctors and all that, that's not very far off from mine to where uh, 
they thought that what I was going through was a psychological problem. And even though psychological stuff were symptoms of it, it was actually uh, caused by great amounts of stress that actually weakened my immune system and also damaged my gut to where I could no longer eat more than a handful of (laughs) different things that didn't give me some bad reaction of any kind and dealing with a whole bunch of other just symptoms. And I, I had gone through so many different uh, phases of it to where like there's, there would be some times where one symptom would arise and another one would, and then another would go away and then another one would pop up. And then, (laughs) and then it was just kind of like more or less playing whack-a-mole with all the symptoms that it had gone to, through me but the first year I was in a state of trying to figure out what had just happened to to me how did this all go wrong and after that I pretty much figured once I figured out it was more or less trying to convince myself because sometimes it, it takes a while for your heart to accept what your mind already knows and vice versa and what and, was uh, it that your that your heart already knew? Well, instinctively, I knew that it wasn't my fault, but yet it's like, what do I do with that? And there was a lot of things that that come down to it because I realized that when I was came back from my mission, I wouldn't figure out what narcissism was for like nine years after I came back. So. But looking back now, I I started to realize that I went from one set of narcissists to a different set of narcissists and or people that were enabling of narcissists or that just kind of more or less played in the middle that were just kind of like didn't give me much answers, but didn't really, but always like, well, we love you. We'll pray for you. Let us know how it all turns out, you know, (laughs) or they say it in singles ward <laughs> but uh the coming home in the last 12 years is i didn't realize that anybody could suffer like that i didn't know that any such suffering was like that and any personal regret that i had was that i didn't more or less take charge of the situation and do the unthinkable you know cuz i for a while i ripped into myself you know, cause it must, you know, I'm thinking it must be my fault cause I'm, you know, it just must be cause like I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of this, whatever it is. And looking back now, I'm like, I, if anything, I should have made the decision to just come home myself cause, but you know, I didn't have the tools to, you know, to do that. I wasn't conditioned to that, to do that, you know, and I was, kind of been fearful of God's judgment at the time of what would happen, you know, if I, if I did do that, because there is the people say, don't hold the regret on your mission type of deal. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a very strong stigma against coming home early. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one thing that most people have to understand is that the two year thing is a recent invention of that is that it's, I mean, in the church, we have a thing of where we have almost like a checklist and the better of a disciple of Christ that we become, we realize that being a disciple of Christ is not a checklist. The checklist can help us, you know, it, it helps guide our focus. It helps us mortals as, and all, but there is a, uh, a danger to it, you know, of too much virtue can become a vice in, in all cases. And doing this type of thing that, that, uh, just trying to phrase my words carefully in, in this is that in church culture is that outside the church, we kind of more or less perceive people as we just, all we need to do is just say, Lord, I believe, you know, kind of like the scripture of, of all we have to do is say, Lord, I believe, and he will just beat us with a few stripes and that will be okay. And, and all. And then in the church, we have more of a, 
human beings tend to work in polar opposites where one side is doing one extreme and and the other side tends to go the opposite way. And I know that because, I mean, I've, I've done that where people were being so immature. I felt like I had to be very mature to balance things out. So, but, uh, the danger of that is in the church is that we tend to get wrapped up in, in just doing all these things and more or less earning our way into heaven and thinking that that is the point of it all is like, we got to do this. We got to check this box, check that box. It uh, reminds me of a Christmas story about the Christmas lighting parade. I cannot remember what the book is for, for the life of me, but a lot of people were going to the lighting event. And this boy always just wanted to be a part of this, but he stopped and saw a man and he, this boy was the poorest and was already late. And he ended up, you know, giving him his food and cider and, and blanket. And he's like, I'll, I'll go and help get somebody to help me because this man appeared to be very weak and, and sick and he couldn't find anybody to at the city to go and help him. And so he went back to find that the old man had gone. And once he gets back to, uh, to it, there was a torch master who is actually responsible of hosting this wonderful uh, event, Christmas event. And it turned out that the old man that was beside the road was the actual torch master. And he had been testing everybody because he was going to be handing the mantle of the job to somebody else that really understood the spirit of Christmas. One of the things that he said is that all of you passed by me, but this boy who was the lowliest, he stopped and gave me care. And all of you in trying to keep Christmas, you have forgotten it is that all of the things that we do in the church, you know, the scripture reading and going to church and help, it's all to develop character, is that we all developed a Christ-like character. And, you know, is there, there are various exercises that reach different personalities that help in that case. And it's a, a matter of that, but it is a pretty dangerous thing in the cult, church culture of, of focusing too much of the letter of the law and not really understanding the point of that law. And that there is times where there is the spirit that needs to take hold. And I think that in the future, that that's going to be more, more prevalent, I believe. I sure hope so. I really, really hope so. I I really hope we're coming at a turning point in the church where we recognize mistakes from the past uh, in culture and doctrine even, and turn this around a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully it is indeed a, a living church and we can, we can change and, and help others actually come into Christ. Like you were saying, uh, that book is called The Light of Christmas. It's by Richard Paul Evans. It yes, that's one. it. <laughs> Was there ever a turning point for you where you were able to feel peace again? Well, it's hard to say if I had really ever felt peace but it's but i can say that the symptoms of it started to not be so excruciating or at least i could i could, felt like i was having some sort of progression somewhere in my life cuz uh, my mission had derailed my life in practically every aspect what i ate what i sl- you know how i slept and and all that the first turning point came when i was living in my car and nine years after I came back, you know, is that my shift coordinator at the temple had uh, aligned for me during the Christmas season to actually stay one week with uh, fellow temple workers that whom most of them I didn't even know. And there, by going to different environments such as that, I was able to find out that I had been severely malnourished and suffering with insomnia for for years and you know (laughs) all the time i'm thinking i'm not good enough but mostly it's just i don't have gas in the tank (laughs) so to speak probably the second turning point was in 2019 where i had a friend who 
who convinced me to stay with him because he knew I was also living in my car. And it took me a while to agree to it. But when I actually stayed with her, I finally, it took a while, but I, for the first time I spoke to someone who wasn't challenging everything that I said. And I, it was just so relieving to me to actually be able to talk to somebody. And they weren't just a wall to talk to. It wasn't just like they were saying, oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it's like, I imagine that that could have been, you know, devastating to you, that that could have made you feel like this. And, and she had had some experience uh, with that, I believe. I mean, or at least I could tell that she was a, a really sweet, sensitive personality. But uh, when she had mentioned something about empaths and it took me months to, to really get into that until I left for Arizona and I, for the first time, actually was at a place and I just felt this surge of anger go through me to where all these thoughts, all these memories were just not giving me a second's peace, you know, where, wherever I went people I was staying with uh, couldn't tell <laughs> at all because uh, I don't tend to show my emotions in that case, but um, which is not always a healthy thing, but you know, in my case, it was kind of more or less forced on me. But uh, I took that time to, uh, to actually study about narcissism and because I was like, I don't understand. I don't, I'm so like, self-aware and I'm always like making sure that everybody's included and like I don't understand personalities that just go out of their way to hurt other people just because they can or just because they feel insecure about themselves that the way to to feel good about themselves is to tear somebody else down and, and all but uh when I was feeling that surge of anger I'd felt it uh once in another place and I was only there for three weeks and then when I came back, it went away. And then, and then uh, after about three months in Arizona, the problem started to kind of alleviate. And it was like, I could think clearly again uh, to where I started to realize because I had taken college level psychology in in school before and (laughs) had no idea that I would, that I would ever be considered a patient on that (laughs) at the time. But I started to realize that each night before everybody goes to bed is that their mind actually processes through the day. So it, so your subconscious mind is processing all your memories so they can separate the memory from the emotion so you're not constantly reliving it. But it will only happen if you feel safe. If you don't feel safe, then because it's, it's a survival mechanism, you're I mean, there's a constant threat. There's a bear in the room or there's a a literal ghost in the closet waiting or monster in the closet waiting to jump out and do whatever, you know, is is a personal trauma to you. And for the first time, I actually was at a place that didn't remind me of any place that had been traumatic for me. I was with people that weren't looking over my shoulder and that were thankfully non-judgmental because my energy was very depleted at that point. I really did not have much strength to do anything. Practically felt like an invalid, and and that's really hard for me to to be because I'm just so, such a goal oriented person, and I can't go forward with my goals. But when all that came into uh, fruition about what was going on and and such, is that I for the first time I was able to trust my own thoughts that I could actually accept things, and it was like I was getting revelation personal revelation. I've always gotten kind of church revelation, you know, almost word for word before, you know, the church has made a stance on it. I've always had kind of a clarity in that section, but I've never had like a kind of personal revelation to, to understand that. And it doesn't come very often, but during that time, it felt like it was coming a lot. It was just a, a really relieving thing. And also to learn about empaths, the reality of being an empath, learning from other people online who have gone through certain things, you know, that actually have have a name for it, actually have a explanation and also explaining narcissism, you know, listening to just 
constant videos as I was out walking, you know, whenever I had strength to do so, is that I just felt so, well, confused for a long time because I was like, I, I'm just not getting this. I don't understand this type of personality. And But slowly it came after a few months and I was like, okay, you know, now I know what the arch nemesis is of an empath, you know, is that I will be able to, I have actually something to work with here of making things right. I can avoid the, you know, the bear in the in the room and, and actually prevent the threat and know how to react in some case. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, education, tools, coping strategies, allowing time to process these things as well and incorporate them into your your knowledge base is so crucial and so key and so important. I'm so sad you didn't get to it sounds like you didn't go to therapy or anything just for any number of reasons. Um, I actually did. Oh, um, you did. Okay. Yeah, I saw about 40 or 50 different doctors and a lot of them dropped the ball on it to where they actually gave me stuff that almost stopped my heart once and oh, all. But yeah, is it it was the last two that I'd visited with uh unfortunately were kind of just lashed out at me in the middle of a, the session to which I was like wait what what's going on here you know like and uh you know one of the things that I found out about Thankfully, about that time, I had come across my first video about empaths where they started out with, do you have people that just hate you right off the bat for no for no reason or people that you know that just lash out at you for no apparent reason? And I'm like, yes. And so, and I, I have, uh, you know, just little understanding about how that, that worked. But the other one, I hadn't... In, even been in the room like 15 minutes and he was actually mocking what I said. And, and I was trying to clarify the situation, you know, clarify it. But the more he did that, the more my brain just locked up and I just couldn't express myself. And my brain was just locking up against my will, you know, cause I'm like, I want to speak clearly right now. I need to got to get this problem solved so I can move on with my life. <laughs> wow. So. I think you would have really benefited from right off the bat being with a therapist who's trained in um, helping those who go through trauma specifically. If I mean, I've done EMDR therapy in my life mm -hmm. for just past traumas and it was extremely effective. There may be better techniques out there now, but God, just, yeah. just for listeners, trauma therapy <laughs> is really, well, did you do trauma therapy though? Actually, were these trauma therapists? Uh, some of, I don't know what their specific title was. Uh, I went to all different types, but, uh, I do remember one person doing EMDR with me and, but unfortunately it only works if your nervous system is intact. Mm. And unfortunately mine got really destroyed by the illnesses and also the, uh, the treatment that they had given me. And the unfortunate thing about like any type of talk therapy that I've learned is that I train horses is one of the things that I do. And I tell people like that I can make this horse really wonderful to a high level point. But if I hand it back to an owner that is that they have this horse and this owner have a toxic relationship, it all comes undone because mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically trying to talk to somebody while the, there's a continuous threat in, in their lives and all. And depending on the severity and also the personality of, uh, of the person, you know, of how this trauma hits to the core, you know, if it hits to the core, like it can hit other places and, you know, the way out can be different things, you know, different love styles, or if people feel a sanctuary and most of my life, I didn't feel like there was a sanctuary to go to. Mostly it was my mind, right. You know, right in writing or going off to do any sort of uh, hobbies that, that were there, you know, but mostly it was self generated. And then I get kind of thrown into a, <laughs> into a situation to where this self generated uh, sanctuary that I have internally is uh it doesn't apply in this case, you know, picking yourself up by the bootstraps just doesn't seem to work, but. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. But I, I have done something like uh, EMDR with, with one of my friends who uh, his nervous system was intact and, and he was able to uh, feel a lot better just in that, in that session. Yes. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I did not know that about the nervous system needing to be intact for EMDR. That's very informative. Thank you. Uh, one thing that I, I should ask is that when I was doing that, for those who don't know what EMDR is, <clears throat> I don't remember what it stands for, unfortunately, but it's basically a sensory therapy where you basically uh, have some sort of uh, vibrators or it can be done with light and some sound and you know that it could be a mixture of any sort of senses. And basically you're going back to to the memory and how I understand it is that you're playing out the memory all the meanwhile, your senses are being stimulated to remind your subconscious mind that you're in the present and that's in the past. And some people will have dreams after that. And one thing that was really effective, the doctor that was doing it with me is that he asked me, what were you thinking about? Like, as we had gone on, I'm like, what I should have done. And I kept on saying that to him. And then he came back to me <laughs> and said, you know, I've, I've been doing that with, with my other patients of saying, focus on what you should have done and, and all that. And I'm getting a lot of good results is what he told me. And because that's pretty much what trauma is, is it's just, it's threats that you don't know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, you always have to figure out how to deal with it and, or how to confront it and, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I agree. <laughs> Thank you for explaining EMDR. I suppose just in closing, what is it that you'd like other future current missionaries, families to know, or anyone who's just going through narcissistic abuse, what would you like them to know? I would like everybody to know that the importance of treating each other, you know, better is because how we act upon other people, it will manifest in their in their health, most likely in ways that we can't even see. It's okay for anybody that is suffering, you know, that has gone through any sort of self-doubt. It's okay to to set boundaries with people and it's necessary to to respect other people's boundaries. Be upfront about that, learn to communicate. And mostly it's just following the Christ example of healing you know, to be able to heal for each other and, you know, don't put your your health on the line in, in doing so. But, you know, one of the gifts of the atonement, you know, one of the Christ's examples is, is to heal. And one thing that I've learned is that when people are hurt, they need external validation. And when they are alone, they need a tribe. And when they are lost, they need a purpose. And we weren't meant to go through this life alone, you know, like, and it's not just to throw it to God and say, oh, well, God will take care of you and all that. I mean, we're all supposed to be family, ward families, you know, some people we have more of a priority to than others, but we all have a duty to each other. And as it says in Ecclesiastes, uh, two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe unto him that traveleth alone when he falls, for he hath not another to pick him up. You know, because we mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Being able to validate each other's feelings, even if we can't relate to them. Just basically learning the art of healing of when somebody asks, says, I'm not doing well is like, I prepared myself ahead of time to to actually know what to say, not just because I was experiencing it. It's just I want to actually be able to make a difference in other people's lives. And I know that we would d be doing really good. I mean, we live in the most disconnecting time in human history, and we need to actually have connection. I think that healing would go a lot faster for everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that, that I could say on that. but. Uh, but thank you for the time that for this. And I really appreciate it because I think this is the first time I've been able to share my story on, on a platform and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. 
Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for coming on and being vulnerable and sharing your story. I believe it'll help many out there suffering from abuse, trauma, or just, you know, just a difficult time coming home early. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. That concludes this interview on early homecoming. If you would like to go deeper into the experiences of early returned missionaries, please consider buying my book, Early Homecoming. You can find it in paperbook, ebook, or audiobook formats on Amazon. If you would like to contact me, please come find me on Instagram at author underscore Kristen Reber or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kristen Reber. That's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-R-E-B-E-R.